Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and I'm looking at the aftermath of Mao's death today. Um, there's a huge amount to be said about this um, and there is a kind of a, an intense debate at the moment um, as there has been for the last kind of 20 years at least about the direction China is taking since the, uh, the self-appointment of Xi Jinping as China's president for, uh, for life. Um, China watches as, as kind of academics in that field uh, go, seeming increasingly like the kind of those Kremlinologists of the uh, the Cold War who were interested in the kind of the goings on inside the Kremlin and who's got the upper hand and, and this, that and the other and, you know, what power transitions are, are taking place and uh, who, who calls the shots. Um, but... Uh, for my my interest is more in the kind of the social history of China and generally more interested in people than in uh, what leader has decided um, to to make what to make what uh, normally fairly despotic decision um, and a great book to look at um, in order to consider that and also to consider the ideas that shape China and the rest of the world is Julie Level's Maoism, A Global History. And towards the end of the book, 
which he uh, writes a chapter called Mao-ish China, which is an amusing play on words, but has a, belies a, a key point that um, after Mao's death, aspects of Maoism uh, re were retained and others were junked. Um, and currently the, the version of uh, Mao is, is kind of seen something kind of like a resurgence um, in, uh, in, in under Xi's um, watch, particularly in, in the creation of a, 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 a surveillance state. Um, the bits that are kind of been discarded are the uh, the relentless war on uh, institutions that Mao uh, brought about in the last ten years of his life. The the, the Cultural Revolution. China is kind of less. Um, the Chinese Communist Party is obviously for very good reasons less drawn to that. Um, but let's begin by looking at um, the uh, kind of. Mao's immediate, uh, the, after, the immediate aftermath of Mao's death. Julia Lovell writes, In the late 1950s, Mao occupied the northern half of Tiananmen Square. His six-metre-long portrait, suspended from the viewing platform on which he surveyed admiring crowds, gazed down at his words, inscribed in his own calligraphy, on the monument to the heroes of the revolution. After his death, Mao annexed the rest, the south of the square, uh, when in 1977 his orange embalmed body was set inside a large mausoleum in order, party plans explained, to underline further the political meaning of Tiananmen Square. Uh, the uh, idea of implanting a meaning on a political, on a, a geographical space is kind of uh, uh, a hugely uh, important thing to, to consider when we're, we're looking at uh, mausoleums and public memory and uh, monuments. If you go back a few episodes, probably quite a few now, uh, I did a thing on the statue, the great Stalinist statue, the Motherland Calls, that was established after the Second World War uh, at the site, on the site of the Battle of, of, of Stalingrad. But in other respects, whilst Julia level, things were not going Mao's way. Less than a month after his demise in September 1976, the, exec the executors of the Cultural Revolution, the so-called gang, so gang of Four, his wife Jiang Qing and her three collaborators Yao Wenyuan, Zhang Chengqiao and Wang Hongwen were arrested. Although one of Mao's protégés, the faithful Hunanese party secretary Hua Guofeng, uh, directly succeeded Mao, he reigned on borrowed time. For Deng Xiaoping, arguably the toughest of Mao's surviving first-generation revolutionary peers, was busy manoeuvring himself into the paramount leadership. By 1980, Deng had mobilised enough support among the party elite to push Hua out of any meaningful position of power. In culture, economics and foreign policy, the headline story of the 1980s was de-Maoification. The first side of unravelling came in the economy. Already by the early 1970s, some rural communist cadres, perhaps exhausted by the caprices of central party directives, had allowed local farmers to escape some of the tyrannies of central socialist planning. Here we must pause for a moment because this is hugely important. There was um, a thesis put forward, and to be honest, initially I looked at it and I wasn't sure, by Frank Dakota, um, who wrote Mao's Great Famine, and he also wrote a cultural, The Cultural Revolution of People's History. This idea that the Cultural Revolution came to an end because of a kind of 
people's revolution a, a, uh, against Maoism. Um, again, I wasn't sure. I looked at it. I thought, hmm, OK, it's atheists. I'm not wholly convinced. But Judy Lovell is making a similar point here that by the early 1970s, uh, Maoism had kind of exhausted China. Um, it had since 1949, uh, over the course of about 25 years, it had caused um, an imaginable um, economic um, hardship. It caused a huge famine. There had been, it had been enforced with immense violence. And more than anything else, on a day to day basis, which is how people experience things, um, it had created huge obstacles that the peasants had never previously really encountered um, between themselves, um, the local markets and, and how they sustain themselves and, and how they manage their time, their energies and their, their work. Um, uh, Collectivisation and communalisation saw peasants during the Great Leap Forward and the subsequent famine dragged from the land and forced to build dams and things like that, you know, worked to death. Um, but more significantly, famines broke out because, well, for, for a variety of reasons. One, because there was nobody doing the traditional work of, uh, of farming. Um, so party cadres, the, the kind of the, the, the local bigwigs and enforcers and, and uh, often in, in, enormously corrupt characters in their own right, the party cadres began to look on uh, Maoism and the, the edicts of Maoism as a kind of a busted flush, something that could be dispensed with or ignored. Mao, in a way, Mao had created this culture during the Cultural Revolution by saying, um, you know, challenge, challenge authority, challenge bureaucracy. Uh, it, you know, the, the party itself has become uh, corrupted. This was sort of Mao's kind of epic temper tantrum after having been removed from power following the uh, the Great Leap Forward and, and the subsequent disaster. So so that here we have two very well respected historians saying roughly the same thing. So no doubt there is something in it, but it's it's interesting to see that entrepreneurialism in china never went away it was there it was heavily suppressed during the 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 the, the, the high years of maoism but also entrepreneurialism wasn't the product of deng xiaoping it's kind of there and you know in peasant societies uh, across the world peasants are out of necessity enormously enterprising people um she writes, free wheelers carved up individual plots from communes, sowed non-staple crops that were extremely profitable in a growing black market and returned to sideline occupations such as animal rearing and handicrafts that had been condemned as capitalists since the mid 1950s. There was a, a, a probably apocryphal tale, but it's worth telling anyway, of uh, Mao showing Khrushchev around China, probably in about 1957, 58, um, during the, the kind of the, the beginnings of the Great Leap Forward and the, the subsequent disaster. And they were going through somewhere in rural China and uh, driving up a road and seeing uh, a peasant selling the last of his possessions for some rice to eat. And Mao said, you see, that's that's how it all starts up again. That is capitalism. There's somebody, try, you know, trying to sell things. 
um, which is a, a kind of a very perverse understanding of what capitalism is. Um, and Mao's answer was, that's why we must continue to ruthlessly enforce um, our kind of state-led Marxist-Leninist Maoist uh, suppression of the capitalist class. And of course, this is just an individual trying not to starve to death. But that was the, the extent to which um, all enterprise, all commerce, all exchange was um, sort of uh, stamped out. In South China, goods supposedly controlled by government monopoly were openly sold privately. Gangs of entrepreneurs roamed the coastline trading in contraband. Deng Xiaoping and his lieutenants, such as Zhao Jiang, formalised and accelerated this process. By 1982, the communes, the foundation of Mao's economic and political strategy, had been dissolved. The, uh, there's a, a debate about Deng Xiaoping, um, whether he simply looked at um, the, the prospects for the future for Maoism and thought, well, you know, the, the game is up, really. Um, there's no way that we can stop people buying and selling things. There's no way that we can try to, without such a degree of anarchy as will lead to either civil war or a collapse of the country, there's no way we can do any of those things. Uh, and, and perhaps more more seriously, as far as um, the, the people like Deng were concerned, there's no way we can continue with the Maoism without destroying the party. And once again, leading to some kind of violent civil war in China. The um, problem, of course, uh, was what you do about demalification. How and what steps and at what speed do you move away from Maoism? Um, because the idea that uh, China would embrace free market capitalism in simply one go, well, that, that wasn't anything that, that, that Deng was thinking. Deng Xiaoping had, uh, it would appear, an open mind. He famously said it doesn't matter what colour the cat is as long as it catches mice. And uh, also famously said um, that um, socialism, uh, poverty is not socialism and socialism is not poverty. Uh, the, the point is not to impoverish people. Uh, though Deng was pretty comfortable with the idea that some degree of inequality would return to China. The the kind of the the, the equality that China had achieved during Mao's years it was a generally a levelling downwards, unless you're a kind of party member, then you live quite a nice life. Uh, it was about making everybody equally as poor as one another. Um, Deng said that not that um, some people would get wealthier quicker than others um, and that there would be um, uh, divisions within China. Um, the, um, the next point to talk about was is the, the Cultural Revolution. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. During the Cultural Revolution, books by, books by this is Julia um, level writing, um, books by and pictures of Mao have been the safest choice of ceremonial gift. In one, perhaps apocryphal story, um, a couple received 102 copies of Mao's works as a wedding pre- as wedding pre- as wedding presents. Enough portraits of Mao had been manufactured for each Chinese person to own three. More than a billion little red books had been printed. Now billions of volumes of Mao's works were mouldering in warehouses. Um, I think there was a, a point that Frank Dakota made uh, in his book on the Cultural Revolution that uh, Mao that um, China essentially ran out of the uh, the raw materials for making red books, the, the little plastic red covers, um, the, the, the paper and the ink. So, so many were produced. Not only were they taking up space needed for post-cultural revolution manuals on modernization, Deng Xiaoping was agitated about how far behind China had fallen in the science and te- in science and technology during the late Mao era, they were also responsible for 85 million yuan in bad loans and required the round-the-clock round guarding by a specialist army division. Despite their best efforts, about 20% of Mao's books succumbed to cracking and mildew thanks to unsteady temperatures. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, resorted to radical solutions. On the 12th of February 1979, the propaganda department banned the sale of the Little Red Book and barring a few copies to be held in reserve, ordered all extant volumes to be pulped within seven months. Up to 90% of the remaindered Mao-era political books were turned into mulch, including the entire run of the fifth volume of Mao's selected works. Um, these kinds of things couldn't be done without a broad popular consensus. There was, of course, a, a significant body of people in China who mourned Mao, who mourned his passing and, gr- and grieved for him. And there was a, a public protestations of, of grief uh, in Tiananmen Square long after he, he passed away. But demarification uh, wouldn't have been possible without a, a broad agreement that the, the Mao years, for the most part, had been a, a terrible disaster. Um, often for uh, for many years, the the party line was that Maoism had been two thirds bad and, and one third good, um, and a, a number of other kind of quite opaque um, answers to to a, a difficult question. Um, the former propagandists of global Maoism no longer believed in the message they had been trained to co to communicate, right, studio level. 
1978, some of the writers and editors of the Foreign Languages Press, which had churned out Peking Review and other works of external propaganda, were sent to study abroad and finally had an opportunity to view for themselves the Western world, which for decades they had been so certain that China was about to liberate. Uh, one foreign language press editor and veteran of the cultural revolutions, exhausting political and social upheavals, was shocked by everyday life in small town Australia. Before I left China, all the propaganda was about how people in capitalist countries were suffering, oppressed, that anything to do with capitalism was bad and anything to do with socialism was good. But when we actually went abroad, we found it was nothing like that. The culture shock was very strong. Everything was so different from China, including at the everyday levels of civilization, of civility. Every morning, the parents took the children to school and picked them up at the end of the day. I thought, how lucky these children are. I wept to see it. I'd spent all these years doing external propaganda in China, but I had no idea how people were living uh, abroad. There's a, a famous story um, of uh, Deng Xiaoping's visit to um, America. I believe it was in, in 1979 where he was uh, fated by uh, Jimmy Carter. He'd previously been invited by Jerry Ford um, and, and this, was, this was about his second visit to America. And he um, was at a, a White House banquet um, and Carter, as a, as a Democrat, attracted um, various uh, uh, Hollywood liberal types. The the chief one at the time being Shirley MacLaine. Uh, Shirley MacLaine is mentioned in a number of books about Western views on on China. Anyway, Shirley MacLaine made in the during the Cultural Revolution a, a famously uh, naive film, which is kind of up there with the the, uh, the writings of Sydney and Beatrice Webb on Stalinism for um, for its its sort of uh, um, lack of uh, ability to to see the realities of uh, Maoist life. And she said to Deng Xiaoping, "Well, I, I made this film, and I, I met this marvelous uh, guy who was um, a, a physics professor uh, in rural China, and he was working." Uh, on a, on a f in the fields, and he was um, he was so happy. He'd been sent to the countryside to really learn about how the peasants lived, uh, and to really change his his decadent bourgeois ways. And it had really done him a, a world of good. To which Deng Xiaoping said to Shirley MacLaine, through a translator, he was lying to you. And of course he was. The man would have been terrified to say anything else. And then he finished off by saying, professors should be in universities teaching students and ended the conversation and just as there were um chinese uh, propagandists and journalists during the mao era who had a skewed version on in their heads of what the west looked like there were also western intellectuals and liberals who had a kind of a wildly misleading idea of what Maoist China was like. Um, the great uh, British socialist politician Tony Benn, during a cabinet meeting in September 1976, when Britain is contemplating its bleak economic future, um, sort of said, you know, that the, the cabinet should have a moment's silence for uh, Mao Zedong, the greatest man in world history. Um, 
so you, you have to really ignore the famine that killed potentially 70 million people, um, 40 to 70 million people, in order to make those sorts of pronouncements. And by the way, for you know, you're talking to somebody who's read and admired Tony Benn for many, many years. But that aside, um, the ability of um, Western liberals and sort of, sort of centre-left and socialist politicians to draw kind of mis misleading or skewed interpretations of uh, revolutionary socialist countries is, is, is quite a, a fascinating aspect of 20th century thought. The distribution warehouses and bookshelves freshly emptied of musty Maoist volumes were now refilled with texts that depicted the Mao era with horror, despair and contempt. Now, this is the bit that I find really fascinating, that there was such a rapid turnaround in public pronouncements about Maoism. There was a, a, a period in the early to mid 1980s when if you were, had suffered under the Cultural Revolution, you could really be outspoken. You could really say it and you could really denounce the cultural thought produced a smorgasbord of styles and genres, from semi-abstract poetry to magical realist fiction and absurdist drama, but most converged on their opposition to life under Mao. They depicted the crushing of the individual, the inhumanities of the Mao cult, the corruption and life-wasting absurdities of socialism, the excesses of, cultural, of the Cultural Revolution, and the horrors of the Laogai prison camps. By the late 1980s, demaification had entered the fine arts too. Zhang Hong Tu, in his Material Mao series, featured the helmsman in a series of undignified postures, disguises and colorations. Mao with the tiger stripes, Mao with the false Stalinist moustache, Mao with pigtails, Mao the lecher ogling the statue representing the goddess of democracy. Irrelevance hit the big uh, irreverence, I beg your pardon, hit the big screen, with the so-called fifth generation of filmmakers demolishing stereotypes about CCP heroes. In 1988, the message reached the small screen also when document the documentary He Shang, Death of the Yellow River, was wildly popular. Uh, it was a wildly popular polemical series attacking the People's Republic of China's backwardness and lack of openness to Western democratic culture. A lampooned Mao worship. Um, it lampooned Mao worship as the epitome of backward cultishness. So it's hardly a surprise that there is a student uprising the following year. It's hardly a surprise that in uh, 1989 there are pro-democracy um, pro-democracy protests. In the very year that uh, Soviet communism finally begins to crumble or finally crumbles, um, you get uh, the uh, protests in Tiananmen Square, which are bloodily suppressed. Um, the general view amongst um, reactionaries and conservatives in the Chinese Communist Party was that's what you get when you allow freedom. That's what you, let, you get when you let these things get too far. And Deng Xiaoping's position was uh, quite, quite uh, um, imperiled and threatened as a result of this thaw um, and the, the kind of the, the backlash from within the party. Anyway, I'm going to finish there. Um, I hope you find that useful. And I, I do want to talk more about Deng Xiaoping because um, I, th I think on the podcast, generally, he's slightly overlooked and his significance as a 20th, 20th century figure uh, and the, uh, the importance of his uh, reforms, if you will, to China 
uh, are one of the, the key aspects shaping the current reality that we live under. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Do check us out at www.explaininghistory.org and also if you can uh, back our uh, Patreon, which raises a little trickle of money for the podcast, that would be awesome too. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye-bye. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you